All right, good morning. It's our third week looking at that guy. He's worried about everything there is to be worried about. And, uh, and some of you in here today, if you're honest, you're probably saying, yeah, I'm that guy right there. But Cliff, there's about five or six things that you haven't even covered that I'm worried about that that guy doesn't seem to be as worried about as I am. And because we've been talking about worry now for, uh, this is the third week in a row. And here's the thing about worry. It's a universal issue. And we talked about it last week, that it's something that's, that's been going on and on forever, that, that the words that we looked at for the last two weeks that, that Jesus spoke were over, spoken over 2,000 years ago. And so we know that 2,000 years ago people were worried, and we're still worried today. Well, today we're going to look at a story that goes back even further. We're going to go back into the Old Testament, and you're going to see that way back then that people were also worried. They had things that they were worried about. And we, one of the things we've talked about for the last few weeks is that really worry boils down to the fact that we're concerned and worried about things that may happen in the future. And the reason that bothers us is because we can't control the future. That is one thing that everybody in here has in common. None of us can control the future. And so we get so focused on those things, we get so wound up into what might happen, and, and, and we don't do what Jesus has told us to do when we talked about it the last couple of weeks. One of the things that Jesus said is, he said, do what you can do today, control what you can control, do the things you're supposed to do, and then leave the results up to me, leave the results up to God. Allow him to worry about the future. And so all we need to be concerned about is, what, are, what can we do today? We do make choices today that have results that happen later in the future, but we can't control everything that's going to happen out there. And so one of the things that happens is is that sometimes we fool ourselves and we will say things, we might not say it out loud, but we say it in our mind and we think, "You know what? But if I don't worry about this, who will worry about it? I'm just being responsible. It just means that I care. I've got to be I'm a responsible adult. I've got to worry about what's going to happen because no one's going to think about that." If I don't think about it, if I'm not focused on it. And so when we convince ourselves of that and we get so hyper-focused on those things that may happen, this is, what, this is what we end up with. We end up with a life where you go to work and you can't focus on what you have to do at work because you're worried about what you should have been doing at home. You're worried about what might happen at home. And then when you come home from work, then you're not able to focus on what you need to be doing at home and how you need to be focusing on things at home because you're worried about what might happen at work. And so we get into this cycle and then all of a sudden we find ourselves that we're really not able to accomplish anything, that we're really not enjoying life because we're so worried and hyper-focused on the thing that might happen, the thing that might happen next. Well, one of the things we talked about last week is that Jesus has told us that we don't have to obsess over tomorrow. He has given us permission to let tomorrow go and let him handle tomorrow. So this is what I want us to do today. We're going to look at an, a, a, a story from the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and find First Kings. If you've got one on your phone, it's easy to find. If you've got one with pages in it, it's, it's conveniently located right before Second Kings, First Kings is. And so you go to First Kings, and, uh, and we're going to go to chapter 19, and I'm going to be doing that in a minute. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Everything that, uh, that we read will be up on the screen. You'll be able to see that. But I want to start by telling you the background of the story that, that I'm going to tell you the story that kind of happens in chapter 18, 
before we, we're going to cover uh, 19 today because there's a lot of stuff that sets up the story we're going to talk about today. Now, if those of you that grew up in church, you might some of this might be like a, a reminder, just a, a review for you. If, if you didn't grow up in church, I think it's awesome that you're here, and this will all be new information. And so way back in the Old Testament, in, in the early days of the Bible, there was the nation of Israel, and, and the nation of Israel, they, they wanted a king, and so, so God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And the very first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. And Saul was a king, and, and then, then he had uh, the next king that came along was the most famous king of Israel. Does anybody want to guess what his name was? the most famous king of Israel? You can say it out loud. David, right. David comes next. He's the next king of Israel, the most famous one. He killed a giant. He could play music. He, he was like a, 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 a masculine musician, which is like the best of both worlds for picking up girls. And uh, so... And which then that later got David into some trouble because he was really good at picking up girls. And, but then he came back to God and repented. And so David was a great king, the greatest of, probably of all Israel's kings. And then David had a son, and, and this next son uh, became king, and his name was Solomon. And he was known for being the wisest man that ever lived, and, and uh, he accumulated great wealth and all this kind of stuff. And Israel saw its greatest days economically and and as a nation under, under Solomon's rule. And then after Solomon, Solomon had some sons. And one of Solomon's sons became a king. And Solomon's son did something that a lot of us do when we're young. Uh, and, and that is a, a, a terrible mistake. Solomon got advice from the wrong people. And so Solomon was a king and he first became king. And he had all these older, wiser men that wanted to tell him things he should do. But who did Solomon listen to? He listened to his buddies. He listened to the guys he graduated in high school with. He listened to those fellas. And he said, hey, I'm going to do what you all think because this is cool. We're cool. Those old guys don't know what they're doing. And the result of that was a split in the nation of Israel. It resulted in like a civil war. And so now what you have at this point in time that we're talking about today because of these acts is now instead of having one unified nation of Israel, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, which is still called Israel, and you would recognize the northern kingdom because they play hockey and it snows up there a lot and they talk funny. And then you've got the southern kingdom of Israel, which is named Judah, and you would recognize them because they like NASCAR and they go fishing and they talk the way God intended people to talk. And so that's, that's the division. I'm just kidding about that part, but you do have a division now. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. Southern kingdom is called Judah. And so there was a, a king later, and so when you read the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, sometimes it gets confusing in there because it'll talk about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And because now you've got two different nations and those were overlapping. So you might be reading about a king of Israel and then reading about a king of Judah, but those things were happening at the same time because those guys were kings at the same time. So there was a king of Israel. His name was Ahab. Ahab was known for being an extremely wicked king. Uh, one of the things that Ahab did is there was this false god named Baal. It's spelled B-A-A-L. And there was this false god named Baal that, that thousands of people worshipped. And it was this whole religion and, and really kind of a, a whole business that was built up around this religion. And Ahab, instead of leading the nation of Israel which to follow the god that had established the nation, which is the god that they called then Yahweh, the god that we worship today, Instead of leading them to worship and, and follow Yahweh, 
Ahab led the nation of Israel into Baal worship. And so it became more popular than ever. It grew faster than it ever had. And it was a very dark and wicked time for the nation of Israel. Well, God did something to Ahab that he does to us. God sent someone to speak truth into Ahab's life. He sent a, pro- he sent a, a prophet by the name of Elijah. And he, he gave Elijah some very specific things to say to Ahab. And so he gives Elijah this message to go to the, the king of Israel, Ahab, who's very wicked. Now, Ahab did the same thing that we tend to do when God sends someone into our life to speak truth into us, because God still does that. We might not be, there's nobody, is anybody here a king that I don't know? Wait a minute, where's Jesse Godsey? Jesse Godsey is the prom king. Other than Jesse, he won prom king last night. Other than Jesse, there's no other kings in this building, okay? And, and even though you're not a king, even though you're not the president of the United States, even though you're not even the mayor of Greer, he goes to another church here in town. Even though you're not one of those people, God still will, will send people into your life to speak truth into your life when you're beginning to veer off the path. And here's what most of us do when, when God sends people to speak truth into our life. Maybe it has to do with the choices you're making, with who you're dating. Maybe it has to do with uh, the way you treat your husband or your wife, or maybe it has to do with the way you speak to your parents or treat your parents. Maybe it has to do with the ra- way you're raising your children or the way you're running your business. And here's what happens. When someone comes into our life, they notice something and they say, hey, you know what, I'm noticing this. I'm wondering why you do that. I don't think that's probably the best path for you to be taken. Here's what most of us do. We say, thanks so much for the advice. I'm going to turn my life around based on what you said. Is that what we do? No, you know what we do? We say, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm no, you're no better than I am. Mind your own business. That's what we do. Guess what Ahab did? He did the exact same thing. Elijah comes to Ahab, and this is what he tells him. It's a very specific thing. Elijah tells Ahab, listen, you are leading the nation of Israel away from God. You are leading them down an evil path, and God has sent me to tell you that if you don't stop doing this, it's going to quit raining. It's not going to rain again until you get your act together and you turn this nation back towards God. And so Ahab reacts the same way that most of us would when he says to Elijah, you aren't going to be able to turn off the rain. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do exactly what I've always done, Elijah, and you need to shut up and get out of my face. And so Elijah says, listen, it's going to quit raining. You just need to take my word for it. And so then God tells Elijah, he tells him, he says, listen, what's going to happen next is I really am going to make it stop raining, and people are going to find out that you told Ahab, and people are going to want to take it out on you, so you need to get out of town. So Elijah leaves because God directed him to leave. So he leaves, he goes out into the wilderness. There's this great story in in, uh, 1 Kings 18 that you can go home and read on your own. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what happened, so maybe you'll go read it for yourself. That God miraculously provides for Elijah while he's out in the wilderness all by himself. And he's providing for him, taking care of him. He doesn't have to worry about having something to eat. He doesn't even have to worry about having something to drink, even though there is now is no rain. And so Elijah stays out in the wilderness for three years. So the nation of Israel has not had rain for three years. Now you need to understand that this was a nation, just like most nations back then, that their entire economy and everything was based on agriculture. So you know what happens when it doesn't rain 
for three years and your economy is based on agriculture, you go into an economical depression. And so things were worse than they had ever been. The, the housing market was down. The stock market had dropped through the, through the floor. People were out of work. People were laying off. Nobody, banks weren't making loans anymore. It was a terrible time to be alive, just like some of you lived through the last few years in this country. And that's what was going on. And so God then tells Elijah after three years, he says, Elijah, it's time for you to go back. And I want you to go back and I've got another specific thing that I want you to say to Ahab. So Elijah gathers up his stuff. He heads back to see Ahab, and he goes to him, and he tells him this. He said, all right, Ahab, here's the next word from God that I'm supposed to tell you. God's going to make it rain again, but only if you meet me and we have a showdown, me and the prophets of Baal, and we're going to do this at a place called Mount Carmel. Now, that is a legit place. It sounds like a location in Candyland, those of you that played Candyland with your kids, but it was a real place called Mount Carmel. It was not actually made of caramel, but it was a real place. And so they gather together this on this day, and on one side you have 400 prophets of Baal, 400 of these guys. And then you have on the other side little old Elijah all by himself. And there are thousands of people that have gathered together because they've heard that Elijah says it's going to rain again. And these people are desperate for it to rain. And so Elijah stands up and he tells all, all of them, he said, okay, I want you to pray to your God and I'm going to pray to my God. And whichever God brings fire down from heaven first will be the true God of Israel. Now, that's some big time challenging stuff that Elijah has just thrown out there. But the reason he was confident is because God had told him to do this and Elijah knew that God was going to back up what he had said to do. So the prophets of Baal, the story says that they had this big big altar and they started to dance around and sing and shout and do all the things they do. It says they even started to cut themselves and bleed and throw their blood on the altar and all this kind of stuff. So there's 400 of them doing this and there's nothing happening. And Elijah's sitting off to the side and he's rebuilding this broken down altar that used to be used to worship the true God and he's rebuilding it. And as he looks over there and he sees that nothing's happening, Elijah starts talking some smack. And, and listen to what he says. He says this, 1 Kings 18, 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now that I remember when I was a kid, and, and they told us this in Sunday school, Elijah immediately became like my favorite guy in the Old Testament because he went straight to bathroom humor, which, which I've always loved then and I still love now, and I thought it was awesome because he just jumps in and is like, hey, what, is your God out there using the bathroom? What's going on? And so he's mocking them, making fun of their God, right? And, and so they continue to do that, and finally when they wear themselves out, and nothing is happening. Elijah gets everybody's attention. And he said, okay, you've been watching these guys dance around. You've been watching these guys shout and sing and cut themselves. Now I want you to pay attention to what's going to happen over here on this altar. And he said, this altar right here, before I call down fire from heaven, this is what I want you to do. I want you to dig a moat around the edge of it. And so they dug this trench around it. And he said, and now I want you to go get water and I want you to drench this altar with water. Now keep in mind, what had it not done for three years? It had not rained. Water was hard to come by. This was a precious commodity. And Elijah's telling them, listen, 
It's precious. It's more precious than you can gold, but pour it on here because I want you to understand that what's about to happen is not a magic trick. What God is about to do here, you're going to know that it's directly from God. It's a miracle, and I want you to see it. And so he, they, they do that. They drench this thing with water. It says that the, the sacrifice that was on it was drenched. It said that there was water in that trench that they had dug, that the stones and the wood, all of it was covered and soaked in water. And then Elijah prays this prayer. 1 Kings 18, 36-38, it says this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah's being very clear that he's not taking credit for what's about to happen. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So Elijah did exactly, God did exactly what Elijah had told Ahab he was going to do. He calls down this fire from heaven. Then after that, Elijah and some other people, they execute all the 400 prophets of Baal. So there's 400 dead guys laying there who thought they were all powerful a while ago and now they're laying there dead at the base of this altar that they couldn't get their God to do anything with because their God doesn't exist. He's not a real God. And so then Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, you need to go home because it's about to start raining and you need to get ready. And Elijah and his servant, they go up on a mountainside and they wait for it to rain. And exactly what God said what happened happens. They see a small cloud, it gets bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden there's a downpour of rain, and they have rain for the first time in three years, and it totally changes the landscape of the entire country. So Elijah, at this point in time, could not be flying any higher. He is a rock star. He is the most famous guy around. Everybody understands that if you want something done, you go to Elijah. They understand that Elijah has this direct connection with God, that there's power that God has chosen to display through the life of Elijah. He is flying high. And so then what happens next? Well, Ahab goes home, and he talks to his wife. Does anybody know what Ahab's wife's name was? Jezebel. That's right. Now, I don't even have to tell you. If you don't know anything else about the Bible, if I tell you her name was Jezebel, and you understand what Jezebel means today, you understand what kind of woman this was. And so he goes home and talks to Jezebel. Well, Jezebel is ticked off. And I'm sure she was snapping and, who, why did you let Elijah do that? And telling him all this stuff. You're sleeping on the couch tonight. But, and here's why she was so mad. Because Eli- Jezebel is like the queen of Baal worship. This whole Baal worship thing, she was more into it even than Ahab was. And so she's ticked off about this. And she's so upset and that now all of her prophets of Baal have been executed. And so she sends a message to Elijah. 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. And this is where we're going to start the story. I know I just told you a whole long story, but we're jumping in and reading every verse here. 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So what she's telling him is, You just killed 400 prophets of Baal. I'm going to do everything in my power, and I'm the queen. I'm pretty powerful. I'm going to do everything in my power that by this time tomorrow, you're just as dead as those 400 prophets of Baal. Now, what had 
Elijah just experienced. Remember what God had just done? This is the time that if you're Elijah, this is, this is the time that I would think that you should respond by saying, what? You're threatening me? This is the time where Elijah, it's like, like the old wrestling. I used to love to watch wrestling, and they'd have the, the promo videos where the guy, he's going to wrestle somebody, and, and, he get, and, he, and there's Mean Gene Oakland, and, and he grabs the mic from Mean Gene, and he starts. This is the time where Elijah grabs the mic from Mean Gene, and he just goes off on Jezebel. It's like, Jezebel, you think you're woman enough to take me down? You want to jump in the ring with Elijah? You want to jump in the ring with the true God? You want to get in a cage match? You want to get in a ladder match, a leather strap match, a, a lumberjack? match it doesn't matter to me you come in here and I'll lay the smack down on you and I'll lay the smack down on all your prophets of Baal just like I've already done I mean he should have gone off on her right then isn't that what he should have done because he had nothing to be afraid of absolutely nothing because of what God had just done but look at what happens look at what Elijah did first Kings 19:3. then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life not to mention that he's running from a girl. Come on, guys. What's up with that? Very powerful girl. He was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. How does that happen? How does a guy that 24 hours before was so bold and confident in what God was going to do that he came off a mountain, walked into the king's palace, and said, Bring you and your guys up on top of a, of a mountain and, and I'm going to call down fire from heaven and God's going to do it. And then God did it. How does it go from that to, hey, I'm going to kill you tomorrow and then he ran away. See, Elijah did the same thing that, that we tend to do. Elijah allowed the worry of what might happen tomorrow to blank out all his memories of God's past faithfulness. See, the thing that we've got to do, the thing that we've got to remember when worry starts to overtake us is we cannot let the fear of tomorrow cause us to forget God's past faithfulness. Don't let the fear of tomorrow cause you to forget God's past faithfulness. God had been faithful to Elijah. He had protected him. He had done a miracle in his presence. But this threat of what might happen tomorrow, all of a sudden it blotted all that out from his memory. He couldn't remember the past faithfulness of God. Maybe he could remember it, but he couldn't believe that God would do it again because he was so scared that his life was going to be taken away by this woman who was very, very angry with him. And so it says there, in, in verse, uh, verse 3, it says, He was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, where, where was Elijah? What nation he was, was he in? He was in Israel. And it says that he went down to the southern kingdom of Judah. So not only did he run, but he left the country. He went like 100 miles away. So this right here, basically, what that means is, it's like saying a week and a half later, because he didn't have a car, he didn't have a, a plane that he could fly in, he had to walk it, so it took him several days to get there. So he runs off, gets as far away as he can from this threat. And then he gets down there, and it says in 1 Kings 19.4, it says this, He went himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, 
and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And when he means my father's, he means his ancestors that are already in the grave. Look at that part there where it says, It is enough now, O Lord. There's another translation that I like because it puts it a little more in our language where he says, I've had enough. I've had enough. Has anybody else been there other than me and Elijah? Have you ever been there where, where you get to a point, whether it's in a, in a relationship, whether it's in a job, whether it's just in your life, it's in your home, it's in your school, where you get to a point where one day you just feel like you want to tell God, God, that's it, I've had enough. I cannot handle any more of this. I'm so worried about what's going to happen. I'm so worried about these things that are coming up that I have had enough. And I, I just want to say that during that I've had enough time, that's a very dangerous time in our lives. Decisions get made during the I've had enough time that have consequences that will go on for years and years and years, negative consequences, because when we're in that time, that's a terrible time to make a decision because you will do anything and everything to avoid what you think is coming. And so Elijah says, I've had enough, and then he says, Lord, take away my life. I'm no different than my fathers who are in the grave. In other words, he's saying, I'd be better off dead. In verse 5 and 7, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree, probably hoping he would never wake up. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. I don't know where the cake came from. I don't know where the hot stones came from. But I know this, the chapter before, it talks about how he was in the wilderness for three years, and God provided for him in a miraculous way in the wilderness. So I don't know if God sent someone to bring him the cake or if God just dropped the cake down for heaven. But the point is that we need to understand is that during this time when Elijah was so consumed with worry that he had run away, that, that he was wanting to die, that God still provided for him during that difficult time that God did not forget him. If I had been God, I probably would have said, man, do it on your own. I just showed you how powerful I am, and you ran from this little girl who's threatening you. I don't care if you go, yeah, go ahead and die. I'll get me somebody else. But that's not the God we serve. The God we serve is much more compassionate than I am or than you are. And he provided for Elijah in the midst of this difficult time. And then verse 7, it says this, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. I love that. The journey is too great for you. It's like God is saying to him, Elijah, you're killing yourself with this worry. You're carrying this all by yourself. and you, I've never designed you to carry this stuff. I'm supposed to be carrying this. This journey is too great for you by yourself. Get up and get something to eat, and I've got a plan for you, but, but, but you've got to follow what I want you to do. This journey is too great. You're killing yourself with this worry. And then verse 8, it says this, And he arose and ate and drank and went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, 
Mount Oreb is also the same mountain that, that sometimes is called in the Bible Mount Sinai. Now you'll understand this is significant because in the earlier part of the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai is the mountain that Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments that Moses went to to meet with God and, and con- converse with him about what was best for the nation of Israel. And so this was like a holy place. So Elijah's getting up and he's traveling a long way. It takes him over a month to get there and he's traveling there to go to this holy place to say, okay, God, I don't know what you want, but I'm going to go to the place that I think that you've been before, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to try to find you there. And then verse 9, after he gets to Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19.9, it says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. 1 Kings 19.9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to, if you're taking notes today, I want you to write that across, but leave out Elijah. Just write, what are you doing here? Underline it, put a star by it, put a circle around it, draw arrows pointing to it, whatever you need to do. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was miles from home. He was miles away from the greatest victory that God had ever done in his life, all because of the threat of something that might happen tomorrow. He had, he had allowed his worry to take him to a place that he had no business being. And that same thing can happen to us. See, worry over tomorrow can lead us to a place we have no business being. It can lead us to a place we really have no business being. Elijah had allowed this thing to to make him run. And there are some of you here today that because of the worry, because of the fear of what might happen tomorrow, you have run away from the place you need to be. Some of you have run away physically. You've left home. You had not want anything to do with those people again. You're trying to create your own life, do your own thing, and you know you really should be back where you came from. But instead, you're going to go do this thing because you don't want to face what is left for you back there. And so you've run away physically. There's a great many more of you in here. You've not run away physically, but you've run away emotionally. You've run away mentally. You've checked out. You've checked out at work. You've checked out at home because you're so concerned. You're so worried about what might happen. You don't know what to do about it that you're just not even going to think about it anymore. And you're going to go check out. You're going to run away, miles away, whether it's mentally or emotionally. You're not going to give anymore. You've given too much. You've been hurt too many times. And so you've run away. Elijah had physically run away. He had left behind what God had wanted him to do. And see, when we do that, when, when we allow the worry over tomorrow to lead us to a place that we have no business being, you know what that's saying, what that's proving in our lives? That is proving that, in reality, we trust the threat of what might happen tomorrow more than we trust the faithfulness of God. That you trust the threat of what might happen tomorrow economically, financially, more than you trust the faithfulness of God, even though He's always provided for you financially for your entire life. That we trust the threat of what might happen in our relationship, even though it looks terrible, even though it looks like it's never going to get better, more than we trust the past faithfulness of what God has done in our relationships up to this point. We trust the threat of what might happen tomorrow more than we trust the faithfulness of God. 
And so we get to verse 10. So God asks Elijah this great question. What are you doing here? And look at how Elijah answers him. Verse 10, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah does the same thing here that we tend to do with God. He gives God information like God doesn't already know. God knows exactly how faithful Elijah has been to him. God knows exactly what's going on in the nation of Israel regarding Baal worship and all this stuff. But Elijah's pretty much saying to God, what am I doing here? Well, let me tell you what I'm doing here. I've been threatened to be killed. Do you not realize that? I'm the only one left. It was me against 400 prophets of Baal. Don't you remember what's going on here? I had to get out of town because they were all going to rise up and kill me. That's what's going on here, God. You want to know what I'm doing here? That's what I'm doing here. And so he, it's kind of like he's making excuses. It's kind of like he's giving God some information. And so then God responds, 1 Kings nineteen eleven. He says this, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Now, you don't know this until we get down to verse 13, but Elijah didn't do it. Elijah didn't go out. He stayed in the cave. He stayed in the cave where he was. Even though God said, go out and stand on the mount of the Lord, Elijah was still so worried, he was so scared, he was so ready to die that he just stayed in the cave where it was. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now, God was making the wind blow. He was doing that, but it says he was not in the wind. So what we're learning from that is, is that God was just showing Elijah his power, but he wasn't yet speaking directly to him about what he wanted him to do next. But he's wanting Elijah to know, listen, this is how powerful I am. I can make the wind blow and it can move rocks around. I just want you to understand how powerful I am. And then it says, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So finally he gets up and he goes to where God tells him to go. He went and stood at the entrance of the cave because he heard this whisper. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, and this time it was in a whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He asked him the same question he asked him at the beginning. But now when he asked him this question, he showed him how powerful he was. He reminded him of what all he could do. And he says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, that question to Elijah was so important. Because God is saying to him, listen, your situation is bad. This woman wanting to kill you is bad news because she can do it. She's powerful. And you're right, people are upset with you where you live. There were thousands and thousands of people who worship Baal, and now you've destroyed their religion, you've embarrassed their religion. They all want to kill you. It's, it's bad news, you're right. 
And if there wasn't me, Elijah, if I don't exist, this is God speaking to Elijah, God saying, if, if, if I don't exist, then you know what you should do? You should get in the cave and hide and want to die because there's no hope if there's not me. But Elijah, guess what? There is. There is me. I do exist. I'm powerful enough to move the mountains around. I'm powerful enough to send an earthquake. I'm powerful enough to send fire from heaven. And you forgot to factor in me into your equation of your life, Elijah. That's what God is telling him. And the same thing is true for us. Some of you are dealing with situations right now. Maybe your life has not been threatened, but some of you are dealing with situations that seem just as hopeless as Elijah's situation. You've got a threat of something that might happen tomorrow that involves bankruptcy, that involves losing a job, that involves losing a spouse, that involves rebellious children, that involves all of these different things, and it looks hopeless. It looks like there's absolutely no hope, and you want to crawl in a cave and die. You just want everything to go away. You want to run miles and miles away from your problem, and God is whispering to you and saying to you, don't forget about me. Your situation looks hopeless, and without me, it would be. But don't forget to factor me into the equation because I can take the stuff that you've messed up and I can turn it around and I can make something good out of it. And so Elijah responds, and this is so interesting because look at how Elijah responds. Because he asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says this, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's exactly the same thing he had said the first time. But you know what I believe? I've got to believe that when Elijah responds that way this time, he's saying it with humility. And he's just saying, God, I don't know what to do. This is the situation. I've run away. Maybe I shouldn't have run away, but I've run away because my life really was threatened. And I really am outnumbered. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then God does something. And we're not going to read all the verses at, from 15 on, but I'm going to skip to verse 18 in just a second. But God does 15, 16, and 17. He does something cool. God begins to give Elijah specific instructions of what he wants him to do. He begins to tell him things like, you're going to go and you're going to replace this king with another king and you're going to go back home and you're going to do this and you're going to train up a new guy to take your place as a prophet. So he begins to give him these specific instructions. And the thing that, that but here's the thing, in order to do any of those things, what did Elijah have to do? He had to leave the cave. He had to leave the cave. He had to leave the place where he went and ran away. And so God's saying to him, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to trust me enough to leave this cave. Because God wanted him to understand that God had a plan. And I want you to know today that whatever you're worried about, whatever the threat of tomorrow happens to be in your life, that God has a plan for the situation you're worried about. He has a plan for it. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But he has a plan for it. When Elijah was in that cave, the only thing he could think about was how fresh the threat from Jezebel was. That was the only thing in his mind. But through it all, God knew, I've got a plan I've got some things that I want you to do. I've got some things if you'll trust me enough to leave the cave. And so he gives him those specific instructions because he had a plan. And then I love verse 18. One of the things that Elijah had said over and over again is he said, listen, I've been threatened to be killed, all this stuff. And then he said, and I, even I am the only one left. 
And God lets them know in verse 18, you know, Elijah, your information is not completely correct because he says this, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. God's telling them there, you're not all alone. You got me, but guess what else you got? You got 7,000 other people back home that they want to follow God. They believe in the true God. They have not worshipped Baal, and they're just waiting on you. They're waiting on a leader to come back and tell them and show them what to do. And it's up to you to go back and do that. I've got a plan, and you're not alone. Now, we talked last week and the week before about the, the instructions Jesus gave. And you remember... You remember last week, and if you didn't hear last week's message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast. You remember last week's message. What did Jesus say that we're supposed to do when we worry? That we tend to worry about those things we're most devoted to. And what do we do when we are worried that we should then shift our devotion? Take our devotion off of that thing that we're so worried to. And where do we put our devotion? We put our devotion on Jesus himself. When he said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added to you as well. So our main focus, our main devotion should be focused on the kingdom of God, what God is trying to do on this earth, what God is trying to do in your life. And so the question I want to ask you today, you've already written it down, maybe you need to write it down again or put a star by it, is this, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? If worry has led you to some place you've got no business being, what are you doing here? How did you get there? What was the threat that, that made you check out? What was the threat that made you run off? How did you get where you are? And then I want you to stop and I want you to think back at all the ways God has been faithful to you. Because here's what I know about this crowd of people. Now, there's some of you here today that I've never met. But most of you in here, I know you by name. And here's what I know about most of you in here today, is that you believe there's a God. Most of you in here today would tell me, absolutely, Cliff, I believe there's a God. And then you know what I know about even a, 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 another large number of those of you in here today that say you believe a God? Many of you here would say, not only do I believe there's a God, but I believe that I have a relationship with that God through Jesus Christ. And I'm trying to follow what God wants me to do. And so what I would say to all of you is, if that's who you are, if you really believe there's a God, then if worry has taken you someplace you have no business being, you need to factor him into the equation. Because what you've done is, is you've thought, this has no hope. And guess what? If there was no God, it would have no hope. You should go to the cave. But there is a God. You believe in him. You have a relationship with him. And what he wants you to do is he wants you to get out of the cave and he wants you to get onto his plan, which is shifting your devotion to his kingdom first and your agenda second. And then he wants you to go back where you came from. Go back to the place that you ran off from. Whether it was running off mentally, emotionally, or physically, he wants you to go back. That's exactly what he told Elijah. Get out of the cave and it's time for you to go back. It's time for you to go back. Worry has led you to a place you have no business being. Don't let today's worries erase God's past faithfulness. Go back to where you came from. I'm going to close this with prayer, and this is what I want to do. I know this has been some, some heavy stuff for the last few weeks, and I've, ta- and I've had great conversations with many of you who have said, 
Cliff, I really needed that because I'm worrying about this or that. And I shared with you last week uh, how worry had pretty much, you know, crippled me on the Friday before I preached last Sunday. And, and, and I shared that with you just so that you would know that I'm right in this thing with you. But if you have gone to a place you shouldn't go, don't stay there. God has a plan for you. He wants more for your life than for you to live it worrying about the threat of tomorrow. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a closing song. And, uh, and during that song, if you want to respond, you can come down here at the front and pray. Please feel free to do that. You can do whatever you need to do. If you want to wait around after the service and talk to me, I'll be right down here in the front. Donnie will be right down here. We'll be glad to talk with you. But don't be paralyzed by something that may happen, by a threat of something that you think is coming up. God has a plan. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your truth of your word and how a story from so long ago relates so clearly to where we are today. I love that just as Elijah struggled with a situation in his life and you were there to speak to him, you're here today to speak to us about the situations we're worried about. And so I pray that for myself and for everybody else here that we would all evaluate that question. What are we doing here? This place we are in our lives, how did we get here? And is this where you want us to be? I know that you have a plan, and I know that your plan is perfect. And so I pray that you would give us the faith that we need today to get out of a cave, to go back where we came from, and to live out your plan for our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.